welcome back to Anne on Show. And today I have Michael McCusker, um, columnist at the Good Men Project, the resilient Irishman, founder of Men of Aspirations. That's right, Anne. Very nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Um, so, Michael, can you just go through your story um, of how you decided to become a columnist and you're a writer also? Yeah, that's that's fine. Uh, let me let me take you back um, right back to, to Belfast in the in the early 80s, basically, during the, the period known as the conflict. Um, I grew up in uh, in West Belfast was at, at that time was sort of uh, one of the most notorious in terms of, of murder bombs um, sectarianism um, anywhere in the anywhere in the world at that stage um, it, it was a really difficult place to grow up in, in one aspect but in the other aspect I have brilliant and vivid childhood memories about what that actually meant about growing up in, in that sort of environment for a young person. Um, if you think back, that was before technology bubble. That was before smartphones. It was, be- <laughs> it, it, it was before uh, PlayStations, mainland games, social media. Um, most of my days were spent with a football in the yeah. street with friends and um, scaling what we called um, condemned houses, so empty houses. We used to climb through them. That, that was our that was our adventure and our fun. And we did that every day after school. We threw our school bags in the hall and we went straight out. And, and certain days, obviously, due to the conflict and, and where there was trouble arising, our mobility was slightly restricted. But yeah. we actually thought that's where, we thought that's how everyone lived. So, so we didn't know anything outside those streets and outside that community. We thought that's how the world lived. And, you know, when you're a kid, you don't really watch the news. You don't really know what's going on around you. So yeah, you, you just, yeah, you just manage your circumstances and what's there in and very quickly on um when i was playing football i i joined a I joined a, a boys team called holy trinity um which was about a mile from from where i lived and i'm, I'm coming up to around 10 years at this stage um and our, our our team at that stage um was probably one of the best in the country um we had we had a number of players that scouts were watching from from mainland uk um, I was I was fortunate enough at that time and through my school football, which was Corpus Christi in secondary school, to travel to three clubs in England over a four-year period. So from 1989 to 1993, I was with Millwall, Leicester, and Southampton. Wow. Now, yeah, well, where this where this gets really interesting is I'm I'm a young boy from West Belfast. I hadn't really um, discovered any other cultures outside of sort of white nationalist and or Catholic um, communities. And here I was in uh, in digs, as they called it. That's where all us young people stayed. Yeah. With, with a, a landlord and a landlady who became our new mum and dad while we were there. Um, and, and a whole subculture of, of young people all trying to make their way in the world, but also trying to make it as professional footballers, but only learning about life. We were only 11 and 12 years at that stage and i can remember this vividly because i've 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 written extensively about this um in the column in a number of stories um when i went to southampton in 1991 i stayed in a military defense camp and the guys were training to go to the gulf war so every morning at 5 a.m i had tanks (laughs) i had soldiers i actually thought i was back home (laughs) i thought i was back in west belfast Home from home, and all the other kids were shocked at this, and I was just sort of sitting at the edge of the bed each morning, and said, "Yeah, that's I'm I'm comfortable in this space." And uh, I actually tell the story that 
uh, we shared a mesh hall, as they call it. The mesh hall is a canteen, basically, where, yeah. where everyone eats. And, and my my first morning um, was was a real culture shock. We were in, you know, a, a mesh hall with sort of all these very tough guys who were going, who were training for war. And there was us all us young kids and, and our coaches. And uh, I was I was laughing to myself because I was thinking about back home, and I was saying, you know, <laughs> back home I was throwing bricks and bottles at these guys, and here I am. <laughs> I've been a board of cornflakes. <laughs> so it was uh, funny when I look back on it now. And uh, at, at the end of each meal sitting, uh, one of the officer officer commandants of of the of the army at that stage, they would have stood up and picked four of us to basically go and wash it. It's all part of your learning and, and how yeah. you experience the world. So go and wash the dishes, tidy up, clean up, make sure everything's ready for for lunchtime. And on the on the third day. Um, I was the only Irish kid in our group, and on the third day, he stood up and he and he, he pointed to me as one of the, one of the four. And one of our coaches, they sat at a table together. He whispered into his ear, "He doesn't need to do it." But I didn't know this, so I was walking to the mesh, to the canteen, that the, the clean up, and the, and the guy, the big guy with the big voice, he says, "Marco, come back here, son. You fucking don't have to do anything." <laughs> so everyone looked round at me, and, I, and this is all my peers. So then, when we get back to the the the, uh, the training base, they says, "Why why did you not have why did you not have to do anything? How are you getting special treatment?" So it actually singled me out in a way that I didn't want to be. I didn't want to be singled out. And what made waters worse is we went to the training that afternoon, and the big goalkeeper who was two years above us, he he had finished training earlier, and he was watching our training session. So he came in the our uh, uh, billet. Do you know those army? They're like timber. And yes. then like a, a half moon shape. He, so we were in there in, in the bunk beds um, and he came in at the end of training and he says, the paddy kid was making you look <laughs> like fools out there. So I got absolutely ravaged because then he was singing me out again. Um, yeah. So we went, yeah, we went to, uh, we went to the first team game the following day. So this is when Alan Shearer, who everyone who follows football will know, he's, he's a commentator on the BBC, uh, greatest goal scorer in Premier League history. So he played for Southampton at that time. Matt Letizia, who's also a, a commentator on Sky, or was, and and Francis Benali, um, who had a distinguished career. So they were all in the Southampton first team. I went to the, would you believe this? We went to the game in an armoured vehicle. Do you know the ones like they had in the A-team with the tarpaulin covers? Yeah. And all the guys in the metal seats. So we, we're travelling up the motorway, and I, I was thinking, who's going to fire at us? <laughs> and, Steady, and I was, peep, I was peeping out to say, and the guys were saying, "What are you doing, Michael?" And I was, I actually had to describe it. Says, "Where I come from, when these vehicles are driving about, there's somebody usually throwing something at them or shooting at them, and they couldn't understand it." So yeah, so you know, when I when I think back to how I started. To develop a bit of that resilience and about a bit of that mental fortitude and toughness. It, it was those times on that yeah. that I think back to when I when I was young that were starting to shape part of the man who is today um, at at forty four. Um, and I left um, Southampton. The last time I travelled over to, to England was with Millwall when Mick McCarthy was the manager. Big big Mick as he's known. Yeah. And I was sitting in the grass watching the, the first team train one afternoon and he came he, he obviously found out where I was from he came over and sat with me for 15 minutes and told me about the World Cup and big Jack Charton you know so as, as a kid at 15 I mean you can't 
you can't write this type of thing. Um, or you can in my case because I wrote about <laughs> um, I was starting to I was starting to miss home. Yeah. I was starting to think that I had been missing out on things that you know a lot of my friends were experiencing. You know, so you know curiosity around girls. They at that stage they were getting into sort of a drinking culture because they were yeah. getting into their teen years. Um, some of them at that stage and had started dra- dabbling in drugs and risk taking behaviour. So all this this is the whole environment and and yeah. <laughs> And I thought I was missing that because I sacrificed obviously a hell a hell of a lot of my childhood to go and pursue You're the football aspect. Yeah. yeah, four years. So I I came back home just before my sixteenth birthday. This is when when Mick was was manager of Millwall, and I knew then I wasn't going to go back. I just I just had it in my head that I just it wasn't for me. I was starting to miss back home too much, which is strange in a way because you you probably yeah. would have thought it would have. You were 11 and 12, you missed home back more. I was starting to miss it more when I was I was getting into that 15, 16. So I, I, I came back home. I'd left school with no qualifications because back then when you were an aspiring young footballer, your school and, and in effect your parents and your waiter community sort of led you away with this kid's going to be, you know, yeah. the next best thing. And she, so you you got away with sacrificing education. And when I talk to young people now, I always say, you need to have the plan B, and the plan B is education. Do 100%. not neglect the education at all as a pathway, or, or else you'll have to do it in reverse, which is the way I had to do it. So yeah. I left school, I had no formal education, and I then went down a two-year period of absolute risk-taking behaviour. I mean, the, the you know, drink, drugs, uh, and no no job, no education, no hope, to, no, no aspirations to do anything, just be yeah. with this period. Yeah. And just basically get in as much trouble as we could because I thought I'd missed all that, and that was only going to come. To, it was only going to come to a bad end for me. And and in June, June of ninety ninety five, I was put in front of the court system. And the following three months, I was back and forward trying to trying to fight a case which I knew was going to go a bad way for me. And in, yeah. in, in October, just before the start of October ninety five, we're on to now. I I was up for. I was up in the, the Crumlin Road courthouse. Anyone listen to this? This is now a tourist attraction. Yeah. Right. It's, it's a, sorry, not the courthouse. The, the prison is a tourist attraction. People from all over the world come and see it. The courthouse was, was underneath a tunnel, which is the main road. And then you went up into the courthouse. So I'm only I'm only 18 years. Mm-hmm. And I went I went in front of the judge and I and I just thought there was something off with the judge when I saw them that morning. My legal team had told me to plead not guilty because they hadn't basically drafted up the case and the plea yeah. in which they wanted. So they, they wanted me to bid for time, basically. And I'm 18, so I'm not going to argue with legal professionals to say, I'm going to go with what these guys say. Of course. So I stand in front of the judge. I, I say, he says, how do you plead? And I says, not guilty. And he says, well, look, taking the, the charges into consideration, you're going to stay in remand until your trial in four weeks. Now, I was expecting to walk out to go back to the house. He then called the two big bailiffs across and they handcuffed me, basically. Brought me underground through a tunnel, dimly lit, very warm because of the radiator. It was big pipes yeah. heating to me in prison for the empty. And I was walked 100, 100 yards up steps into what is known as, as the basement. Um, and in the basement, you are locked up for 23 hours a day. So just think about that in terms of your mindset for a young person at 18 um you don't know who else is in in the basement with you because it, it, there's no there's no natural sunlight yeah it, and if it is a basement and the only light coming in is from the window in your 
in your shell. So you've got a bed and you've got a Bible and that's you and your men for four weeks I stayed in there for, which felt like four years. How did you um, feel like that? <laughs> I, always make, I always make a joke with this. I said, I, I started exercising religiously and where that leads to, I'll tell you as we move through. So I, I started basically using, turning the cell into, in, in effect, a, a home gym. So I was doing all different exercises and using the bed and, and, the, and the, there was like a small bedside locker, if you call it that. Yeah. I started using that as, as a home gym. And, and I always make a joke. I said, if, if there was a world championships and press-ups, I was going to win them. <laughs> <laughs> so I, was, I was doing thousands every day. Um, and and that's that's how I basically did it. And, and I, I, I basically was able to get some um, pencil and paper. And I, I, I started, I, I basically started writing a lot, just yeah. normal stuff of what I wanted to do potentially if this went my way and what I potentially was going to do if it didn't go my way. And I just, I just started writing that. Um, and we were allowed out every day for 30 minutes of exercise and then another, another 30 minutes, what I would call your, you walk around in a lane, you got your breakfast, you got your lunch and you got your dinner and in in like a hatch. So that's the yeah. first time you came in contact with everyone else who was in, in there. And, you know, some of these men were some of the most notoriously violent men yeah. <laughs> you'll ever come across. Um, and, and I'm this 18 year old kid in among all those guys you were scared to say boo um, and, and you knew by their demeanour and their face of expressions that you know they, they'd been through a lot um, so I, I really kept myself inward over those four weeks and then went back under the ground tunnel again um, back up and the, the same team says, look, plead, just plead guilty to the charges. It's your first defences. You're going to walk. Brilliant. I've been in here four weeks. It's been very difficult. And while I was in there, I had no visits. So no, no, no parents come to see me, no family, just, just me. So just me in the four walls. Um, oh and I said, OK, so I, I judge comes out. How do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? I plead guilty the three charges he says taking that all into consideration i'm going to sentence you to 18 months so i'm thinking i'm walking out and not walking out so so the, the way it works is you've got you serve 50 percent on remission so that was an, an 18 percent is, is a nine month unless you basically do something wrong um, and increase the sentence while you're in there so back down and went under the tunnel those clothes that I was wearing, which were their prison issue, off of them, on with my own clothes, and then put into what you'll probably see these on TV. They're called a horse box. So it's a it's a metal corrugated iron band. There's wee small windows in it. Yeah. And then there's there's in effect there's eight eight boxes in it, which the the smurfs would struggle in. <laughs> the smurfs would struggle. You're sort of sitting like this. <laughs> and you can't, you can't move. They're they're ridiculous. Um I drive across the city, 15 minute drive that you think it's two hours because you, you, you actually have no concept of where you're going because you can't see. Gate opens and then for the next nine months I was in, in the Hay Bank in Belfast, which is it puts in in effect as a young young offender centre. Yeah. Um in there, I mean that, that was that was how I changed my life around. That's how I, I changed my stars in effect. About four months in, into the nine months, I wanted to get the the, 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 the gym job basically. A gym orderly is one of the most sought after if you like sport and fitness, the gym orderly is one of the most sought after positions in a in any prison in any part of the world you get to train all day you get to meet people all day and you also get to do qualifications right, which was the really right so in there i was able to complete fitness instructor courses i completed uh 
couple of courses in business. I completed a couple of courses on cognitive cognitive behavior. Right. So so someone with nothing is coming out with something. And I had a real I had a real focus on what I wanted to do. So when I left, and this is after missing President Clinton's visit to Belfast. Oh. And this is true. My mum was on the news on the Falls Road and I'm sitting watching her with all these guys. Oh, there's my mum trying to get at him. Right? Unbelievable. Well, still, it was uh, it was it was a, it was a difficult period. Yeah, this co- this comes out in, in in the ratings, obviously, because even though you 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 had purpose in terms of a job to go to, you were able to socialize, take that all away. You still couldn't go anywhere. And when you were put in your room at seven thirty at night and the door locked behind you, that was your contact cut off with everyone. Um, because you you you. You had no phone and you couldn't talk to anyone. And in fact, that was called lights out. So they basically, they, they turned all the lights out. You had lights yeah. in your, in your, but all the lights across the main corridors, that was all out. And if you, if it got a bit boisterous, the guys, the, the prison officers come down, oh, you heard the gate opening and then everybody was quiet again because they, they wanted sort of, obviously, no noise basically. Because once there was yeah. noise generated, they thought something was going to happen. So I walked out in July 96. I wanted to, go into sort of some type of fitness environment back then because of the qualifications. So I searched around for something that would jump out, some type of course or some type of, at that stage, it wasn't going to be a job because I didn't have enough experience. I I needed to do education. So I found a course, um, which was sports therapy. Yeah. So it was a it was a two-year course at the local um, adult education centre. And one year into the course, which I was absolutely loving, the, the tutor came to me and says, Michael, um, you want to go to university? And I says, yes. She says, this course, and with your lack of formal educations from GCSE, this won't get you in. You need to do uh, a degree or a foundation degree, as they called it. I says, well, where will do that? And she says, there's one in Belfast, Met. It's a, t- it's a two-year course. And yeah. that is an entry pathway in the Ulster University. I enrolled on, on that course um, in the September, on, And <laughs> it was in science, maths, and ICT. I may as well have been fucking Latin because I <laughs> didn't have a clue. Brilliant. <laughs> And I absolutely no clue about any of those, that as as those subjects. So I actually had to get a lot of extra tutoring, and yeah. and the, and the tutors were fantastic. You know, I, I I couldn't thank them enough when when I left because they actually helped me. So to two years later, I left with a distinction, and that was someone with no no qualifications. Wow. That's so unreal. I, so I, yeah, it's 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 a it's a great it's a it's a great education journey, but it was it was it was my midpoint. Yeah. So I then to get into Jordanstown, which is one of our large universities, and at that stage I wanted to do physiotherapy or sports exercise and leisure. Now the in the year I applied, I think the physio course was oversubscribed, and there was a lot of people applying that had more academia, and so they went through done their GCSEs, done their A levels, yeah, had more qualifications than me. Um, so I, I, in effect, I waited a year and I, and I actually, at that time, I secured a job in a, in a, in a fitness gym in Belfast. So I, I was, I was working there and I was putting what I'd learned into sort of practice day to day. Brilliant bunch of people. We all knew each other. It, it was like, do you know, cheers, do you know, cheers. Yeah. Yeah. That was our gym basically. <laughs> <laughs> Without the alcohol, which was a bit of, <laughs> I, cu- I couldn't sell that behind the counter, but everyone. <laughs> Right, everyone knew everyone. 
brilliant, brilliant camaraderie, brilliant yeah. spirit. Everyone would have done anything for anything. So that was the atmosphere. So the following year, I applied in and I'm filling in the, the UCAS form, which is the, the form to get into the university. On the form, on, on any academic form, it says on it, do you have any convictions spent or unspent? Now, this is, this is the question that anybody who's been in the system absolutely dreads. Yeah, of because there, there's there's only two choices. You either don't tick the box, which means you're lying, and then if you get offered a position, then the employer and or the academic institution can basically disqualify you on mm. the spot. Or you can tick the box, tell the story, and then hope that they buy into the story and say, "I'm going to give this person a, an opportunity to prove themselves because they want to turn their life around." I'm 23. I see the box, and I don't know what to do. Because yeah. I know I've just been through a four-year education journey to get to here. And I know what I know would actually mean in terms of my future prospects. So I go to Citizens Advice yeah. and I ask Citizens Advice what I should do. And they said, Michael, leave the box blank. So I said, well, if I leave the box blank, they're going to pull me in and they're going to ask me, why did you leave the box blank? And that's when you can tell your story. So... I leave the box blank. The course starts. So I'm three weeks into the course. I get a ladder to the mom's house. Open the ladder. Michael, can you come to meet the course director and the head of admissions on Friday in the university? So the dread, if you can imagine, the dread right down to my feet. Because then I thought, what's this actually going to mean in terms of my future? So I land into the university on the Friday, open the door. About four people sitting there, two women, two men. I sit down and they say, Michael, I think you know why you're here. Why didn't you tick the box? So then I explain the whole process of what yeah. I've been through, or I changed my whole journey. And they says, look, will you wait outside? And I actually, when they said, will you wait? Actually, they had it said something there and then. Because when I went back outside again, I actually felt the weight of the world pressing on me because then my thoughts were starting to run in every direction yeah, about what, what this would actually be. They bring me back in and they basically say, taking everything into consideration, how you've changed, we're offering you the opportunity to stay on the course. Wow, which was, that's amazing. Which was which was unreal. And they said, you can go leave the room and continue in your class this afternoon. I actually ran through the university. Now, there were thousands of people in the university, thousands, you know, going about their classes on the mall, mm. going to the cafe, you know, all chatting, running right through their own university, out into the car. And I sat in the car for 20 minutes and cried. That was... That, that was... That yeah, that was... That for me... Sorry, that could that, have been that, like a real turnaround for you like if they had said no that could have led you down a very wrong path I suppose you know what I mean yeah, yeah. well it could have brought me back to when I was 18 yeah and and this is here here's the biggest problem for for people when they do leave if they don't find a focus on a purpose they you we call them yo-yos so they they become a they become in effect a product of of a, of a system so they they, yeah. they jump back in again then they come out, then they jump back in again. So they're yo-yos. Um, and I, I obviously didn't want to be a yo-yo. Um, and that that decision back then, going back 20 years, that for me was was was, was life-changing. Um, I then went on, finished my degree, um, and I was the first in generations to actually actually complete an academic degree in, in both sides of the family. Mm. Um, and then I, I, I went in and <laughs> I went and worked straight out of college our university i went and worked for a, a multi-level marketing company right yeah no salary all all commission based right mm-hmm. so 
You started work at 6.30 a.m. in the morning. You trained until 9 a.m. Then you went out into the field, as they called it, and you, and you sold products. And then you came back to the office at 6 p.m. and you trained again from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m., Monday to Friday. So you were doing 70 or 80 hour weeks. Wow. And this was like, have you ever watched The Wolf of Wall Street? I watched bits the, of the movie. Bits of it, yeah. Right. It was like that, only without the debauchery. It was a nuthouse. It was, it, was, it was brilliant learning experience, but you were there was music pumping when you at six thirty in the morning. You were gathered in circles. It was it was cult like. It was yeah. absolutely cult like, and and it was it was all part of the process of how they bought you into their system basically. And I I built up quite quickly a good sales team. Yeah, I became I became a trainer. I became a trainer within six weeks. I then built up a team of eight. Who were for them were becoming trainers, and we were solid earners. We were we were earning every week, um, and then one week they had an absolutely terrible week. Five of these guys had families, so at that stage I had no kids. Yeah, I had no real overhead. Five of these guys had mortgages, had kids, had overheads, and on the Monday I was trying to cajole them over the weekend because I knew that you know they were going to get a hard time from their wives and their partners, and on the Monday. I, I came to the office at half six and not one of my team was there. So none. Oh, wow. And I went I went to my manager and says, Look, I don't think I can do I don't think I can do this anymore. I don't think that I, I, I have the energy to build up a whole other team to do the whole 70 and 80 hour weeks again with with, with more guys and, and, and girls and, and try and get them as the build teams. So, so I left and uh, myself and the two friends got together and we started our own business. Um didn't have any idea about business. But could actually blag our way. We we blagged our way into everything. <laughs> just blag. And uh, we we uh, there, there's just there's just there's a story on the Instagram on the uh, on the link in the column, yeah. and it's called it's called um, Walking in Memphis, the Belfast Boy Band and Crocodile Tales. <laughs> I won't actually read it. <laughs> it and and. And that's how we basically that's how we get into business. We actually we ended up linking in with this large operation. Their headquarters were in Memphis, Tennessee, the home of Elvis. Hmm. We're going across. Obviously, we were new to business. We have to. We bought three piece suits to travel to a country that has forty degree heat. <laughs> <laughs> and we we rocked up at the airport. Instead of putting the suits in our luggage, we wrapped up with our suits in suit bags, told the girl at the desk that we weren't putting them in the luggage. We wanted to carry them on board. She let us and says, you have to put them in the overhead compartments. So we didn't want to do that. So we actually said to the air hostess, look, we've got a very important business meeting as soon as we get off the airport. Is there any way you can put this? So she puts it into the, she put it in with the captain's (laughs) jackets. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh Jesus! Are you, are you, are you? So we we fly to Memphis and we arrive at the hotel in the rush to book everything. We we had forgot about sleeping arrangements, so there was a double bed for three men. <laughs> and in, instead of phoning downstairs to get a, a, some type of pullout bed, we were too embarrassed because we we'd already made the booking. So the friend said, "Look, I sleep in the nude at nights," and I. <laughs> I take the chair for the duration. You two do what you need to do. <laughs> so we're 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 waking it up 
now that you think about the heat, so yeah. in London, do you know the church you can just sit on and you can have a cup of coffee? So, yeah. so that was my bed. I, I put my feet up on the, the coffee table and, and I was lying. And I woke up with a very stiff back very early in the morning. Sun was out. It was the height of summer. And I woke up to go to the toilet and the naked butler was lying above the covers. <laughs> <laughs> like this. Uh, not a seat you want to see at half five. So we we go down to meet... Um, Dave, you call the owner of the company. Yeah. So he he comes into the hotel. The Belfast boy band in the three piece suits <laughs> rode across to meet him and one of his team. And he had said that he he loved the story of the Titanic. Yeah. He said, I love everything of Titanic. So we had bought him a, a a framed Titanic photograph, which was an artist had sketched this from an yeah. old that was taken from the wreckage. So he had sketched this and he wrote. You know the, the date and stuff on it right back to when titanic um had sank and it was in a lovely frame it cost us 18 pounds so i stood up and i said to dave dave this is an official titanic photograph right now if it was official it probably would have cost us 120,000 at sotheby's auction <laughs> could you come back <laughs> so what we hadn't done the, the price tag was still on the back of the frame Oh, and I'm William, and he 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 hasn't seen the price tag. So the, the the two business partners see the price tag. So they jump up and say, "Let us see that." I so we have to run interference to get his head off this frame photograph. So the mate gets it down on his knee, and he's frantically trying to pull the sticker off while still talking to Dave about the, the value of the photograph. He's pulling the eighteen pounds end off. Oh yeah, brilliant times. Um, and uh, he uh, he he says, "Look, guys, do you want to accompany me and the team out for lunch um, this afternoon? We'll spend the day together, and we'll get to know you as as people." So we said, "Yeah, no issues." He says, "I need you to do one thing before you meet me this afternoon." And we says, "What?" And he says, "Take them fucking suits off." <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant! Oh, he was. He, he was brilliant. Um, it was it was a great trip, man, because he, he brought us to us this um, restaurant yeah. in Memphis. They were the most friendliest people I've ever met. You know, lovely Southern draw. Yeah. Couldn't do enough in terms of you know um, service and, and and waiting. And Dave says when we sat down, he said, um, "We'll get a starter of crappadale tail." I never tried crappadale tail in my life. So when in Rome, you do, you do. So yeah, I says yes. Yeah. And he says, look, can I recommend this this drink called the Hurricane? Right. So we're three Irish guys. So we're going to say, we're not going to say no. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this glass comes out and it actually, it, if you think about a hurricane as it spins, it's actually, it's actually, when you look at it, you think it's actually spinning around. There's, there's a, oh, there's a, there's a, within it. So you're looking at this going, geez, this looks, this looks amazing. So I says, yeah. So myself and the, the, the two business partners, we drank the first one and then they says, look, we don't want to drink anymore. We'd sip over a beer. So Dave says, do you want to get another hurricane to me? And I says, yeah, we'll have a hurricane. So this went through a three-course meal. I think me and him had about five hurricanes. And I, I felt I felt absolutely brilliant. The conversation was flowing. His team was there. Great laughter. Great bunch of people. And he says, look, we'll go out. We're going to go down to the jazz quarter, which is... Yeah. What, what Dave didn't tell you is when you drink a hurricane, you're completely lucid in your mind, but your legs are drunk. So, so I... I tried to get up and fell down. Just fell. Just fell. My legs were steaming. <laughs> oh, brilliant. 
So, anyhow, me and him's holding each other up as, as we walk down the main street in Memphis. Um, heat, people everywhere, all enjoying life. And, and yeah, you know, yeah, there was yeah. so many amazing things. Um, the smells, the sights, the culture. I mean, there's, there's a huge black community. You know, some of the guys were, you know, at least seven foot. And there wasn't just one of them. There was a lot of them. Wow. You sort of felt. You actually felt like a dwarf as soon as they were walking around because yeah. it was so tall. Do you, do you ever see those cars in the hip-hop videos that just, they can move up and down like that? Yeah. So yeah. these are going around the corner and the guys are in the music going, think all like this. <laughs> what is this? But absolutely brilliant. Um, and our, our second to last day before we left, he took us to Elvis's house. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we went to his original home in, in Tupelo which is no bigger than a normal terraced home kitchen. That was his house. It was, it was one room. There was like a rocking chair, and then there was beds, and then there was a chair, and then there was a kitchen. It, it, it was one room, basically, was his house. That that whole thing. So that, that's where he came from, like real poverty. And then you, you go from there, and you go to Graceland, which is where him and the, the, the parents are, are obviously buried. So we, yeah. we went around. Absolutely amazing. We were around the whole Graceland house. He's got all his records in the wall. Um, his museum then is across the road. He has all his, his, his vintage cars, his airplane with Elvis on the side, and you can go into the actual plane. Absolutely, you know, unbelievable experience. Um, and, and we came back home ready to take on the world as you do when you when you, when you do. But you hadn't actually thought how you're going to take on the world, but you know you're going to take on the world. Long, long story short, after about a year, we, we actually couldn't meet the expectations that they had we put on ourselves and they had set us. We actually couldn't deliver because we, we were only new to business. And even though we were finding our way through, these guys had been in business 30 years and they, you know, yeah. they worked the tight deadlines, they, you know, and we just we just couldn't cope honestly and we couldn't cope and you know over that 12 13 year period um i had been in business with with the two friends i mean i and this is how everything sort of went power shape and how i had to go full circle again yeah um i i uh i bought a franchise with with two other um business partners and to do that we freed up now this is before the 2008 crash Right. So you, you okay. get credit with no job. If you think yes. back to you know what was going yeah. on back and, and, and the bank and the lending. And so we 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 freed up a lot of money on our, our existing properties or homes, basically. So we, we bought a unit, kitted this whole unit out, you know, all the plumbing, the electrics, yeah. flooring, all the equipment. Right. So we, we spent, between us, we spent about 103000 between the three of us. Wow. Got the franchise, yeah. Got the franchise open. Everything was going great. Membership was good. We then get a call from uh, the owner of the franchise in America, and he says, "I've been looking at your success. Would you come and meet me in in, in New York with my head of, of international development?" Yeah, so we we says yeah. So we flew over in some some Patrick's week. Would you believe some <laughs> Patrick's week in New York? Um, party Central. <laughs> party Central. So we we flew over, met him, and he says, "Look, we would like you to take on the whole franchise for the UK and Ireland." For this brand, um, wow! I'm not going to get. I'm not going to go into the name of the brand because there's okay. a lot of people have existing court cases against against the brand. Okay. Um, flying back home, I knew there was something off. I just said to the two business partners, "There's there's something off in this picture. This this isn't 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 looking right." So when we got back home, we invited a number of the existing franchises to a meeting in, yeah. in a hotel, um, just outside of it, just just to get their stories about 
How have you found the relationship? What sort of support are you getting, etc., etc.? Of the 16 franchises we invited, five of them had already been out of business for the best part of six months. Of the 88, the, of the 88 franchises that were on their website out of 200, a lot of them were got out of business. Yeah, yeah. So we met a lot of the, the owners and they told us their stories. Now, this was, you know, some of the most emotional scenes that I've ever witnessed. It was people, you know, losing homes, you know, losing business and homes, you know, family fallouts because they borrowed off family to, to do this. Um, so yeah. we knew we had to break, we, we had to break the contract. And these are, these are watertight contracts. They're like 10 year contracts, most of them. You know, so we had to, we had to break it. We found a loophole and hard to break it, and we, and we broke it basically. And then we we went on and 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 did the whole. We changed the name. We had the gym yeah. in our own names, and, and we were we were starting to thrive again. And, and then one of the main fitness brands in the UK opened about a mail from us, right? All singing, all dancing, offering yeah. everything. You know, jacuzzi, steam rules, swimming, every everything that we didn't have, they had, right? So after about four weeks, I says, look, I'm going to book a a mystery tour into this gym to see what's in it. Yeah. So he goes down to the gym to get out. He's taking me around and slowly but surely I started seeing members of our club on the gym floor yeah. and in the pool. And they, because we had such a good relationship with them, they were trying to hide <laughs> behind the machine. No <laughs> 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 <Old> man, hey. <laughs> oh Jesus. Right. But that was that was a death nail for us. Uh, within yeah. within six months we We'd lost a large portion of our membership, man. And it was only going to lead to closure. Now, if you exactly. think about how we got to that, we had freed up equity in our houses. What happened? The crash happened. So the value in all our houses plummeted. Yeah, of course. I was then asked, absolutely plummeted. I was then asked from the mortgage providers to for more money to meet in effect, the crash. So I was I was paying this amount in the mortgage. The crash happened. Instead of it going that way. They wanted it to go that way. So they actually wanted more money for a house that had devalued. Right? Crazy. Six months in it, I was receiving five phone calls a day, every day, even even the weekend. I had then offered them four payment plans, but they point blank refused. They wouldn't accept yeah. them. So after about six months of living with us in terms of the stress and where next, myself and the, and the partner, now we had we had two young kids at this stage, newborns actually. Um we had to make the decision. We basically went down to the estate agent and gave the estate agent the keys and said to the estate agent, sell that house. You'll not make anything on it. If you do, you can go to the mortgage provider to get the money. So they the mortgage provider lost a hundred thousand in that house because they wouldn't agree to any payment plan. And, and they were forcing us into an action that we didn't want to take, but we had to take it because they were asking for three times the monthly amount for the mortgage, and we could only pay what the house was actually worth. So we so we lost that. So yeah. family home family home went, the business went. Um, a large part of of my work and my identity all all left. Um, and I managed I managed to start over again. Um, and and start to build up the business again. Um, with, with different organizations um, right back to, to 2013 um, really starting to take on the world again and we had we were in the the uh, funding and grant sector basically so we were securing public and in fact government monies to deliver programs for young people that were a bit like me when I was 18 yeah. no yawn in out of the system right so that, so that was my passion then and I worked for an organization for about three or four years to set that up and they brought me to India they brought me to mainland UK you know brilliant experience for me um I was able to travel around the world and meet some amazing people through that and in, in 2013 um I made absolutely 
monumental decisions that would impact right up to COVID of, of last year. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll describe what happened. I went to the bank based on grants and loans that we had secured that hadn't come in to the account as yet. Three hadn't come in, but we'd met with, with organisations to say, we're going to fund this. This is a brilliant programme, et cetera. So I, me, went to the bank, took out two loans to basically grow the business, so the marketing, the strategy, the office, my salary, yeah. et cetera. The grants didn't come in, which means I was left holding the can because I, in effect, had signed for the loans, right? Oh. Wow. The money didn't come in. So the company was going to be bankrupt, basically, and going to be left with the debt. Long story short, two there were six directors. Two of them backed me, three of them didn't, right? Okay. It went to court, right? So they, they reported it because they didn't want to be left with, with the financial cost, right? Financial cost was about 36000 right? So yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't millions, it was 36000 They all had their own jobs and it got into a situation of self self-preservation. So everyone, every man for themselves looking after their own interests. Yeah. No issues with that. Only I was the one trying to carry and shoulder everything that had happened. And and I and, and to be honest, I created it myself, thinking that everything was going to work the way I had seen it. Yeah. It didn't. So that whole situation, this was 2014, lost me my business, lost me um a whole in effect at that stage, a whole professional network, which I had mm-hmm. built up the you know, a really high standard. The rumor mill went in overdrive. I then started self-isolating because I thought that everyone was, was you know, taking their piece of meat, so to speak, on. The community grapevine was in overdrive. Yeah. I, I basically went in the spiral of suffering. Um, didn't want to go out. Didn't want to get on. Actually, I didn't know how to get back on the feet. That's I'd lost the motivation to, yeah. and everything that, that made part of me. I'd lost the whole motivation to do anything. So I, I sat in suffering for about 18 months, you know, completely disengaged, drinking a lot, you know, was felt worthless, you know, had mm-hmm. resent, had anger, had lost hope, all those emotions you go through. I actually thought I was going through a grieving process, you know, you, like the steps. Yeah. Um, and that lasted right up until March of 2020. Right? So this is, this is at the start of COVID. Right? So in yeah. that six-year period, I had worked. I actually call myself the king of menial jobs <laughs> because I, I took on work with absolutely no responsibility. Yeah. just above medium wage. So I couldn't actually put down in my CV what I had did. You know, because if you're going for a warehouse job and you've been a director of a company, <laughs> and they're going to say, yeah. what are you doing in here? Or what are you even applying for this post for? So I had to rejig a lot of what I did to make it very basic so I could get into some of these positions. Now, these were, you know, when I think back to some of those jobs, I mean, they were soul-destroying. I mean, when people yeah. talk about getting bed in the morning and, you know, having an enthusiasm to tackle the day, I was the exact opposite. I actually didn't want to get out of bed to tackle the day because I knew that I, my main, yeah, it was it was just dull. It was lull. It was, there was no enthusiasm around at all. So this will take me right up to March 2020. So you take the whole, that whole six-year period, the resentment, the anger, the outcome of the case was yet to be heard. So I had all that juggling in my mind. COVID then, from March 2020, COVID hit. So no job. Had to sign on Social Security, which is welfare. So this is this is a man with 20 years experience in the professional sector, right? Yeah. The stripes of, of a very difficult transition through life on a degree, right? So take all that away. So I was, I was me. And I stepped down. I couldn't go anywhere because of COVID. So everyone was locked down. Yeah. I had no income. Basically just signed on for... Um, universal credit and there, there's there's a story on on the in the link in the instagram bio yeah. 
called the social security system and the stigma tattoo. Right? So I've I've written I've written about my journey over the past year within yeah. that and what that actually means for people who were trying to navigate that system. Um, absolutely soul destroying. You 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 lose your autonomy when you do yeah. this. On absolutely lose all your autonomy. Um, you lose your impetus. You are controlled by, in effect, a screen because yeah. think about COVID. Everyone was off work. There was no one in work. So this, you're controlled by emails and prompts from where you, you don't know a machine, basically. Um, and that, for me, was the lowest that I've ever, ever, ever been in, in, in my life. It was, it was the actual lowest. And I, I wrote down four questions yeah. on a bit of paper at 5 a.m. I can actually remember the date. It was on the 12th of April last year. I wrote down four questions on a bit of paper. And, and I'll tell you four questions. The first question was, are you happy? Right. Yeah. And then the, the answer to that was absolutely not. Second question, what are you going to do about it? Answer, take action. Third question, when are you going to do it? Answer, right now. Fourth question, what's stopping you? Answer, nothing. So those four questions turned into what is now over 85,000 words. Wow. It will form part of a book, which yeah. I've been asked to write on my whole journey. I started publishing those stories to a writer's platform called Medium, yeah. which only became aware of through sharing some of the stories with like a close group of people. Say, yeah. what do you think about this? And they were giving me critique and feedback. And so instead of me shying away about everything that had happened, I, I said to myself, I'm going to put this out here. Watch and all, I don't care who engages with it. Yeah. It's yeah. actually, it's helped. It's helping me in terms of my process. So I then started getting up every morning and writing the whole way through lockdown before anyone had got out of bed. So I was writing, you know, 5.15 a.m. in the morning. Yeah. I was reading. I started raising a schedule. I started thinking about what I wanted to do with my life moving forward. And after around I'd, six of the stories had been published, an editor from the Good Men Project, which, which is based in New York, yeah. these, these guys have two and a half million visitors per month. They have 7,000 authors. Now, I'm not a writer at all. I've never, I've, I've written reports when I was in work. I've written business yeah. plans, but I haven't, I haven't written anything for people to read about my life and about my journey. So here I am writing about my journey. This editor then reaches out and says, Michael, I saw one of your stories. Would you mind if I, they call it syndic syndicate or syndicate yeah. across? Basically means they lift it and put it on another platform on the Good Man Project. And I says, no, no, any, any stories you want to syndicate across? Sending it across. So so they start lifting these stories over a number of months. And then the editor says, Can we have a Zoom call? A bit like this. And I says, Yeah. So, so we're having a Zoom. And she says, Where do you want to go with your writing? And Lisa, Lisa's only and I says, Lisa, I haven't even thought about this. I've been writing as a as a process for me to tell my journey and to tell my story. People are connecting with it, but I'd never set it up to be that yeah. way. Yeah. She says, look, there's a brilliant story within it. Would you be interested in, in becoming a, a columnist? This is in, say, 12 months. So yeah. kitchen table, nowhere to go. Do you want to be a columnist? All right. So I then says, yeah, what does that mean? She says, look, we've got relationships with, you know, some of the biggest magazines and publications in the globe. Um, we have 7,000 authors. We have two and a half million visitors to our website every week. Your, your name and your story will grow. We just need you to come up with the name for your column. So we're going back and forward and Lisa says there's a there's a real story of resilience within this. Yeah. Of, you know, 
being knocked down so many times and, and coming up, being knocked down and coming up. And I says, well, I'm Irish and you're saying resilient. So why don't we come up with a resilient Irish man? And she said, we love that. That <laughs> is brilliant. And that's how easy, that's how easy it was. <laughs> there was no major. Your story that's, is that, like the, inspiring. So that's where, that's where they started connecting. And then Lisa asked, she's, she's got her own publication house. Yeah. So she then asked me, to, would you be interested in writing a book around this? And I says, yes. And she says, well, how many words have you written thus far? And I said, at that stage, I think I'd written 62,000. And she says, the only thing I need you to do is I need you to send me a story every week to be published between 1,200 and 1,500 words. Yeah. And even if you don't feel like writing, I want you to write every day. I don't care if it's five words or it's 500. I want you to write every single day. Can you do that? And I said, yes, I'll do that every day. So from starting to tell a lot of stories from, from, from Belfast and me growing up and, you know, my childhood and business and losing the home and social security yeah. and, you know, young offenders, you know, people then started, a lot of people who would know me in a personal capacity are finding out all these new things through yeah. the stories. Got a really engaged group who are really connecting with it. And they says, look, a lot of that stuff is absolutely brilliant. It's transporting me back to my childhood, you know, because, yeah. you know, in, in, in one of the stories I'm writing about, you know, the, the youth disco that I used to go to, the aftershaves back then, the music, <laughs> you know, the fashion. Yeah. So everyone's, the 80s, so everyone's jumping on it and they're all telling their stories about it, uh, you know. So it's been brilliant. Everyone's reminiscing about, you know, that the 80s and their, their experience of the 80s, you know, how they, how they you know, became curious with girls, you know. My best friend says he fancies you, but it's really me that fancies you, but I don't want to tell you it's me, so you tell him it's her. You know, all this <laughs> stuff. The games, you know, uh, kiss, kissy cats chase a girl around the community and kiss her in the cheek. And yeah, it's brilliant, you know. <laughs> but it is all, all part of growing oh uh, yeah all part of growing up so everyone's connecting with a lot of that and and the music back then and the style and the culture and you know hard was for young people um the breakdance battles in the street with the leno and the ghetto blasters you know all you know all this stuff from america <laughs> in belfast <laughs> uh american american football bomber jackets la raiders you know nwa what, what's that got to do with that that whole subculture. Uh, so a lot of people jumped on that on and engaged with that. So now I've started, I've started using my experiences of the past 12 months. So, you know, yeah. self-awareness, self-analysis, introspection, purpose, where, where I started to, to connect with this, yeah. how I started to connect with it, why I do what I do. So the stories have started to, 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 to move towards that. I mentioned sort of off screen, I was chatting about authenticity, so that there was an aspect of that. I'm publishing one on Friday around purpose, yeah. which is taken from one of the great stoic emperors, Marcus Aurelius, who was, you know, the film Gladiator. The whole That whole film was based around his story and, and, and Maximus. Um, it's taken from his teachings and his philosophy on life um, and heart how I potentially evaluated what I was trying to do, linked back to, you know, a Roman emperor. So it's 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 trying to put a different twist on something that's, you know, hundreds of thousands of years old. Um, mm -hmm. And I will continue to do that each week because the column requests that I write a story each week. Yeah. So I, I, I spend each week doing research, reading more books, connecting with people. Um, and Clubhouse, is, for me, has been excellent for that. Um, yeah. 
I managed managing to thread a lot of people's stories together in, in the in the alternative narrative. I mean, my my passion is is listening to people around resilience and, and backstories and pain and mm-hmm. trauma and how they've come out the other side of that. That's that's what gets me up in the morning now. Um, mm-hmm. So I've connected with a lot of these people on Clubhouse. We all have, you know, unique, real, really seared with scar stories. But I've, you know, went on and a lot of them are tackling the world at the moment. You know, brilliant, you know, real light bulb people, um, purpose driven, get up every morning to add value to someone's life. Mm-hmm. So I've connected with a lot of these guys and we're working on something at the, at the moment um, as a as yeah. a collective, which will be a real Clubhouse story. I mean, when you're on Clubhouse, you, you jump in and out of rooms, you listen to people, you yeah. may connect, you may connect. Um, but it's 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 connecting with people and then actioning something from from that. And that's that's a, that's where there's a story. Clubhouse in itself is a story, it's a social audio platform yeah. you connect with people. Yeah. What I'm trying to do is is from that platform action a movement of it that actually does exactly what it says on the tin. So they're not on Clubhouse talking about what they do on a day-to-day basis. They're chatting about, I've connected with a number of like-minded people on Clubhouse and we're taking action on a, on a problem that we want to address as a collective. There's a real story in that because there's there's so many people with so many different experiences all coming together under a, under a banner. Yeah. That should start to materialize over the next number of months, Anne, and you'll start mm-hmm. to see that on, on Instagram and Twitter and some other be mentioned on Clubhouse in, in certain rooms, etc. For me, my my purpose now moving forward and, and what gets me up out of bed in the morning, add value to one person every day, either through yeah. written or spoken word. That that's that's why I'm here. People say why are you here, what's your elevator pitch, what's your what you know, why what's your motto? There there it is in, in you know 15 seconds. Add value to one person every day. That's it. And if and I can do so that, important. yeah, like so so important. Like you know, for for anything. Like do you know what I mean? You you don't. Nobody knows anyone's story unless you start talking to them. <laughs> I <laughs> I was uh I was in a in a room yesterday, and the topic of the room was called walk on, and it was it was hosted by a girl from Liverpool who's a yeah. Liverpool fan. So she invited me onto the room. I'm a I'm a Manchester United fan. <laughs> so, so I, I said there as soon as I spoke, give yourself a pat in the back. You've got a Man United fan on in a room with the title walk on. <laughs> and do you know do you know what the topic was? Your favorite places to have a coffee, a beer, and sit and, and travel to. And it was just it was just brilliant. You, yeah. you were transported around the world. People were talking about, you know, Kenya, Niagara Falls, Memphis, New York. I was talking about the west coast of Ireland, you know, as, as a road trip. Yeah. Um, a little place just outside Belfast that apparent, apparently sells the world's best cinnamon scones. Now, I've had them, but I haven't had cinnamon scones from the rest of the world, so I don't know if that's true. <laughs> Brilliant. So, Michael, like, what is next? Like, obviously, you were saying, you know, there is going to be things over the next couple of months. But, like, your story is amazing. Like, you know what I mean? How you went from, you know, a young age right through to where you are right now and all the stages that you had to fight through, the barriers that you had to break through. Like, that's that's amazing. Um, So, like, are you doing anything, like, with the likes of, say, young offenders now? Well, this this new collective that will be an aspect of of the work we're we're going to look at it from a, a mental well-being mental health the whole fallout from covid which will come with that mm-hmm. and then on a personal level for me it's it's trying to it's trying to reach the disconnected so 
you know, those that, that don't have hope, those that don't have aspirations, those that don't have an education, it's, tr- it's trying to connect with those people at a local level with local people that, that yeah. really care and want to help them. That's that's the next part of, of this journey, along with um, along with writing the book. That's that's going to be the next part of this this journey. And I can't wait to read your book. <laughs> I love reading the book, so I, I'm excited to read yours. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> I've I've actually uh, I've actually been asked to write three, but I told her I told her I'll write one, and then I'll look to see what happens after that yeah we could turn it into an encyclopedia collection the stories of michael j mccusker (laughs) (laughs) but even just growing up growing up in northern ireland growing up in belfast in those times alone like that could be a book by itself i'd say oh yeah you're exactly right it could it could be a book by itself and that's for me it's trying to focus and, and refine what i want the book to actually communicate you know, yeah. it, it, is it a story from from then to now, or is it have, going to have a specific focus around resilience, and, and then the whole focus is on resilience? So it's it's me trying to fine tune that now, on because as she always says, you need to get very targeted with what you want this book to say and who you want to read it. Exactly. Because the whole so that's I'm trying to refine that at the moment. So fingers crossed, within a year, if you're traveling through any airport, you'll see a book that will catch your eye, and you can ring me and tell me. brilliant Um, Michael look it was lovely to have you on today I really appreciate it and I wish you the very best of luck but I'll be chatting to you anyway um, over the next while but tell me where can people find you on social media so you can pick me up on Men of Aspirations on both Twitter and Instagram and on Clubhouse just under my name Michael J McCusker well look thank you so much and as I said I wish you the very best of luck thank you (laughs) 